Uh, as we begin um, chapter 9, I want us just to think about a question. Uh, and that is, what do you think is the biggest danger to the church today? Just think about it for a minute. What do you think is the biggest danger to the church today? In a room like this, there's probably a hundred different ways that we could answer that question. Maybe you think the greatest danger to the church is clearly secularism. The fact that less and less people believe in anything much, let alone the God of the Bible. Maybe you think the biggest danger is materialism, our obsession with stuff, with things that we can see and touch and hold. Maybe you think it's social media and the way that is just taking over people's lives. Maybe it's celebrity culture, maybe it's radical Islam, maybe it's vague spirituality. I read uh, this week that uh, more and more millennials, people my age, are, are getting into um, horoscopes and shaping their lives around horoscopes. No longer just something in random TV guide magazines, but something that people are really taking seriously. Maybe it's that kind of vague spirituality, that vague idea of something out there that you think threatens the church. There are all sorts of ways that we could answer that question, but one answer that we might find surprising is one that Don Carson suggests in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. Carson says that more than all of those things, the greatest danger to the church is complacency. Complacency that shows itself in a lack of prayer. He writes this, We've learned to organise, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves into the media, develop evangelistic strategies and administer discipleship programs. But we have forgotten how to pray. And so complacency, himself, complacency he says, is a subtle but great danger for the church today. And as we come to Joshua chapter 9, we see that it was as much a danger for God's people back then as it is for us today. Because in Joshua 9, this time it's not a Canaanite army that threatens the people of God. No, it's their own complacency. And so that's our first point as we look at this chapter, the danger of complacency. If you've been with us in our evening services, you'll know that we've worked through nine chapters now of the book of Joshua. And by this point in the book, the people of Israel are gaining a reputation in the land. They've not been there that long, but news about them seems to be spreading fast. News is spreading that a nation has arrived, a nation who walked across the River Jordan without getting their feet wet. A nation that has beaten every city, every army, anyone who stands against them has been pushed aside by this nation. And so what do you do? What do you do if you're living in Canaan and you know that the Israelites are just around the corner? Well, your first option's there in verses 1 and 2. Just look there with me. Verses 1 and 2 gives you the option, what you do is you, you get all your mates together and you wage war against Israel. You go on the attack, on the offensive. Uh, we're going to see how that works out next week. Or you could go for option 2. You could go for the Gibeonite option, which we can see in verse 3. Just look at verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, 
they resorted to a ruse. Rather than go on the offensive, the Gibeonites planned to deceive Joshua and the Israelites. Verse 4, they went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. It's a simple plan from the Gibeonites. It's simple, but it's well executed. Their supplies, their food, their drink, their clothes, they all look as though they've been well used on a long journey. It's a good plan. But in verse 7, Joshua has a few questions. He says, perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? You see, Joshua needs to be absolutely sure where these people are from. He needs to be sure because of what God had said back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Years before Joshua had reached the promised land, God had given Moses some very specific instructions of what to do when they got there. Just listen to what Deuteronomy 7 says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. As we've been seeing through this book of Joshua, these battles in the land of Canaan, they're actually achieving two things. First, God was giving his people the land he promised them. But second, through Joshua and the Israelites, God was carrying out his judgment on people who had persistently rebelled against him. And so he says there are to be no exceptions, Uh, which means Joshua, when he gets into the land, he he needs to be sure where these people, where these travellers have come from. But the Gibeonites, they are prepared for this kind of a response. And so they say in verse 9, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. The Gibeonites are prepared. They say all the right things. Do you see they begin with a bit of flattery? They praise the Israelite God for his mighty acts and his great victories against other kings. But notice which mighty acts he talk, they talk about. They only mention the events that happened a long time ago. Events that happened before Joshua had arrived in the promised land. They don't mention the, the more recent events of Jericho or Ai, Because if they really had travelled such a long way, well, they wouldn't have heard the latest local news. And so they have a good answer, and it's backed up with some really good evidence. Verse 12, this bread of ours was warm when we packed it, they said, at home when we left and the day we came to you. 
But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins, they were filled with new wine, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and our sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Gibeonites play their part well. It's a good plan with good answers and good evidence. And so as Joshua and the Israelites listen and hear their story and examine their evidence, they become convinced. They become convinced as I think we might have become convinced. But then they make a very bad decision. Verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. With Deuteronomy 7 in their minds and the Gibeonites standing right in front of them, not one Israelite decides to ask the Lord. No one says, don't you think we should pray before we act? No. No, the Israelites, Joshua, they get complacent. They look at the evidence and they make their own decision. And so in verse 15, we see that Joshua makes a a treaty of peace with them. And that peace treaty is ratified by an oath. The oath is made and then in verse 16, just three days later, all is laid bare. The Gibeonites are discovered. They're not from a distant land. They're Joshua's neighbours. They're the very people that God has commanded Joshua to wipe out. And so the Israelites, well, well, they've done exactly what the Lord told them not to do. After all the things they've been through, all the battles, all the Jordan crossing, these big events, here was something they thought they could handle. Here was something they thought they were on top of. Something they didn't really need to bother God with. Because the answer was obvious, wasn't it? It was standing right in front of them, holding mouldy bread and wearing worn out sandals. This was an easy one. But of course it wasn't easy. The answer wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious to the Israelites, at least. The only person it would have been obvious for was God. He could have told them what to do. The Lord could have told them exactly where the Gibeonites had come from. But no one asked him. No one prayed before they acted. They got complacent. And as a result, they disobeyed the Lord. And we can be just the same, can't we? Complacency is as much a danger for us as it was for them. I think that's particularly the case in a big and busy church like ours. As we heard Don Carson say at the beginning, we can spend a lot of time organising and strategizing, but not so much time praying. Uh, Maybe we we look at Joshua 9 and we think, well, if I were in Joshua's shoes, if I had the kind of relationship that that he has with God, well, then of course I would have prayed. But God doesn't speak to me like he spoke to Joshua. He doesn't guide me the way he guides Joshua. So it's no real surprise that I forget to talk to him every now and then. Maybe that's what you think. And to an extent, you would be right. God doesn't speak to us the same way he spoke to Joshua. But if you are a Christian here this evening, then in lots of ways you have an even greater, even closer relationship with the Lord 
than Joshua did. You see, back in those days, only Joshua and the high priest could go before the Lord and speak with him. But now, because of Jesus, every single one of us can call on the Lord whenever. Whoever, wherever, whenever, we can talk to our Heavenly Father about anything we want to. Back then, Joshua, God might have spoken to Joshua in amazing and dramatic ways. But today, all of us have access to God's word. All of us can listen to God's voice whenever we open our Bibles. And so we can talk to God, we can listen to God. And what's even more amazing is that as we do those things, we have God's spirit living in us. God himself in us, helping us to talk and to listen to him. As Christians, we have these amazing privileges available to us. Direct access to the God of the universe. The God who delights to listen to us. The God who wants to speak to us. And yet, just like Joshua and just like the Israelites, so often I, so often we, fail to come to him. Our Bibles stay closed. We can't remember the last time that we prayed. And then we wonder why we struggle in the Christian life. We wonder why God feels so distant. Why it's so hard to keep going as a follower of Jesus. And so Joshua 9 warns us. Watch out for complacency. Beware the danger of becoming a prayerless Christian. Beware the danger of becoming a prayerless church. We've seen the danger of complacency. Next, we see the display of God's character. It only takes a few days for the Israelites to discover that they've been tricked. And as you can imagine, they're pretty upset about it. They're angry. And then in verse 18, we read, but the Israelites did not attack them. Because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Despite their anger at being tricked, the Israelites don't attack because of the peace treaty they've made. A peace treaty that importantly has been made in the name of the Lord. But then we see at the end of verse 18 that there are some people who are not that convinced. They, they grumble against the leaders for this decision. And if, like me, when you first read this, you might have had some sympathy with those people at the end of verse 18. Uh, maybe you read it and thought, come on, Joshua, sh- surely you can just still get rid of the, the Gibeonites. After all, they tricked you. They lied to you. Surely that means that you don't have to keep your oath to them. That, that doesn't seem right. But I think we think like that partly because we live in a world where our word doesn't mean all that much. We live in a world where we pay people lots and lots of money to reinterpret the law, uh, to find loopholes and get-out clauses in in the things that people have said. And so we read Joshua 9 and we think, well, maybe with the right lawyer, uh, Joshua could get out of his treaty. Surely there's something in the small print that says, well, if you've been tricked, if you've been lied to, then then it doesn't count. Uh, But look at verse 19. All the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. The leaders say no. 
No, there's no way round. There's no loophole. There's no small print. We have sworn an oath by the Lord, which means there are no exceptions. We must keep our promise. And so verse 20, they say, this is what we'll do to them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. You see, it mattered that the Israelites kept their promise. It mattered because they were God's people. And as God's people, they reflected God's character. One of the the big themes that we've seen in the book of Joshua is the fact that God is faithful, that he always keeps his promises. The whole series is titled Promises Kept. In fact, God's faithfulness isn't just a theme in Joshua. It is the theme of the Bible, isn't it? Uh, Because when we stop and think about it, God's faithfulness is essential. Yes, God says that through faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. Yes, he says that he loves you like a father. Yes, God says he will always be with you and that he'll complete the work that he's begun in you. He says those things, but how can you be so sure? How can you be sure that God just won't change his mind? That he won't have an off day? How can you be sure that there's no loophole in what the Bible says or or a get-out clause when it comes to God's promises? Well, time and time again, the Bible's answer is because God is faithful. You can be sure of God's promises because of who God is. Because he is the same yesterday, today and forever. The God who never changes. The God who doesn't change his mind or have mood swings. The God who never makes mistakes or has regrets. You see, as Christians, our security is in the fact that God is faithful. It matters that he is faithful. And that means if we are God's people, well then we should be faithful too. We should be faithful to our word. We should be faithful in our marriages. We should be faithful employees and employers. We should be faithful in our friendships and in our relationships with other people. We are called to be faithful Because in doing so, we reflect the faithfulness of our God. And actually, the same is true for all areas of godliness, isn't it? Because just like Joshua and just like the Israelites, we all make mistakes. We all fail. We all sin. And those mistakes, those sins, they have consequences. For Israel, it was the consequence of living with the Gibeonites. Uh, For us, we might be living with all sorts of consequences of our sin. Uh, But whatever they are, whatever our situation, we are still called to live in obedience to God's word. We're still called to display God's character in all that we do. Uh, We can't go back into the past. We can't change the things that have been said and done. But with God's help, we can live godly, God-like lives in the present. We can know for certain that the guilt of our sin has been dealt with at the cross. As Paul says in Romans 3, there is no condemnation for those who are trusting in Christ Jesus. 
but we also know that we live with the consequences, the mess of our sin and the mess of the sins of others. That is the situation we are in and it's in that mess that God calls us to be obedient, calls us to display his character to a watching world. We see the danger of complacency, the display of God's character, and finally, the extent of God's grace. I don't know if you've picked this up as we've gone through Joshua, but so far, things have been pretty black and white, haven't they? People have either been with God or against God. You either follow God and experience his blessing, or you face God and you experience his judgment. It's been pretty clear so far. But then when we come to the Gibeonites, I don't know if you, if you notice this, but things get a little bit less clear. You see, although they use some dubious tactics and although they tell a bunch of lies, there is still this kind of element of humility about them. Just look at what they say in verse 24. They answer Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. That is why we did this. They might not have gone about it in the right way, but the Gibeonites at least recognize it's better to serve God's people than to stand against them. And so verse 25, they say, we are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. The Gibeonites humbly submit themselves to God's people. And the result is there in verse 26. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Through Israel's failure and through their own humility, the Gibeonites experience God's grace. Rather than being destroyed, they become servants woodcutters and water carriers for the people of God. And did you notice where they will carry out their work? Verse 27, at the altar of the Lord. Through God's amazing grace, the Gibeonites will now experience the blessing of being in close proximity to God's people. And as woodcutters for the temple and for the altar, they will witness the heart of Israel's worship. Every day as they go to work, they'll be faced with the things that speak of Israel's God. The Gibeonites will experience God's grace by being allowed to live alongside God's people. But, but I don't think this is the same thing as with Rahab back in chapter 2. You see, unlike Rahab, we're given no indication that the Gibeonites actually trusted in the Lord. They're not spoken of as being included in the people of Israel, just living and working alongside them. And so you could say that the Gibeonites get to experience God's grace, but they don't know or trust in that grace for themselves. 
And again, the same is true for us today. Each week, plenty of people come through those doors at the back. They come in and they enjoy coming. They feel loved and welcomed and cared for. They see and experience God's grace and blessing in the lives of God's people. But they don't know that grace for themselves. They don't trust in the Lord themselves. They've heard the gospel, but they don't believe the gospel. They've sung about Jesus, but they've not submitted to Jesus. And so they've experienced God's grace by being around God's people, but they don't know the full extent of that grace for themselves. They don't yet know the grace that can bring them from being outsiders to insiders, from enemies of God to children of God. And so we have the same situation today, which means, well, it brings us back to where we started It means we need to pray. First, we need to pray that God would help us to display his character. So that as people come here or meet us out in Chessington, they see the image of God in us. And they are drawn to the faithful God that we worship. One book that Danny uh, didn't recommend, or he recommended this morning, but didn't mention this evening, is this one called In His Image. Uh, The little bit at the bottom says, 10 ways God calls us to reflect his character. We need to pray that we would reflect God's character. And then one really practical thing would be to grab this book and read it yourself or find someone else to read it with to help you think about how you can do that in your life, whether it's at work or at home or at school wherever you are. Grab that book, and and as Danny said this morning, guys, don't be put off by the flowery cover. This is not just a book for women. Uh, This is a book for all people. So grab that book afterwards. We need to pray that that God would help us to display his character. And then we need to pray that God would bring those kinds of people to trust in Christ, to know and experience the full extent of God's grace for themselves. The grace that means they are no longer an outsider looking in, but part of God's family, part of the people of God who know and love the Lord Jesus and who belong to God now and for all eternity. They need to trust God's faithfulness and we need to pray that that would be the case. Let's pray together now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we are sorry for for how we neglect to talk to you. Father, we're sorry that even today, as we're surrounded by your people and been listening to your word, there have been opportunities and times when we would have failed to talk to you, failed to even acknowledge that you are with us. Father, please forgive us for those times. Please help us to see the awesome privilege it is that we have a God who delights to listen to us, who wants to speak to us, who wants to change us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus, to display your character in the world. Father, we pray that you would help us with these things so that when people look at us, they see the Lord Jesus and they want to come to know him for themselves. 
want to belong to his family and be part of his people. For his glory we pray. Amen.